0: Hello and welcome to the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best selling author, and as a psychotherapist, hosting this podcast is a natural fit. Every week, I will invite you into my therapy room where I shall be joined by a well known voice or an unknown voice, and they will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. At the end of each episode, I will be joined by my two, yes, two psychotherapist daughters, who will reveal their thoughts and broader insights about my therapy session. It really is three therapists for the price of one. It's definitely worth a listen. Hello, Jess. I'm delighted you've joined us on our podcast. And Jess is 43. She's originally from Essex, now living in Stockholm with her 16-month-old son, Duke. She's worked as a teaching assistant, a documentary producer and a waitress. So welcome, Jess, and I'm delighted to see you. And I guess we'll start with the first question. Tell me about a challenge you've
1: had or had to face um well thank you for having me julia um it's really great to connect with you um i'd say the biggest ongoing challenge in my life right now um it's related to my son duke i single parent and i have 16 a beautiful 16 month old baby boy um and just to speak really candidly about this i think it's kind of helping me to own the story a little bit he is the product of Um, not from a relationship, but uh, an encounter, let's say, I had with a a guy that I met once. You said to me a Tinder. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, So so I've come to kind of think of him as almost the best mistake I ever made. But I think that the perfectionism in me, the perfectionist tendencies have, well, I I mean, honestly, it, it probably would be a difficult situation for anybody to work through. But I think that, particularly with me the fact that it didn't happen in a kind of perhaps acceptable way in terms of society's expectations I guess something like that and family's expectations I think has has been a real struggle and I'm really conscious of the fact that he's just this amazing child and he's put so much happiness and light to my life at a time when I was really grieving the fact that I thought I wouldn't become a mother so there was a lot to work through Um, And I just am really conscious that I don't want to pass on any shame uh, or feelings of guilt attached to how he came into the world to him.
0: So there's something that you're exploring, which is given that you're a perfectionist and you like order and control. Yes. Your beloved son came (laughs) completely by accident from a Tinder date. Not from a relationship who I guess the dad doesn't
1: know he has a son. He no, he does, he does know. Um, and that's something as well that's that's been, you know, an ongoing challenge. I did, I did let him know of the situation as soon as the pregnancy was, you know, confirmed to be going ahead and it was all healthy. It's something we've been working on, but currently, as of very recently, he's struggling a lot with it. It came at a really difficult time of his life. He just turned 50 and gone through a divorce. Uh, I think we were both not in a great place when it happened.
0: Neither of you planning to have children? No. You wanted children, but
1: and thought you'd come to the end of your fertile years. Exactly, and and I had this health complication that had, that had been happening in the background for a few years also, which had um, caused infertility. So the carelessness. Um, on my part was I think due to feeling a bit reckless and unhappy in my life and also not really feeling like a pregnancy was possible um and you know these things happen it's it's it can happen to anybody even old people like us but (laughs) I say us him and I is what I mean um but yeah he he is as of recently erring more on the side of not wanting to be involved but he has a lovely 14 year old daughter and she has always been very positive about it from the start and she is very much interested and and wants to be a big sister to her little brother um so we so we really don't have clarity I would say on the situation I'm trying to be open-minded um as far as he goes because I do realize that um it wasn't something he asked for he didn't have once it happened he didn't really have any control over it and he was already going through these kind of significant. milestones in his life so I think this has triggered him hugely on top of everything else he was going through and I'm trying to keep an open mind about the future because Duke's still very young and um, you know one day I want to be able to say to Duke that I held the door open and I you know tried to be compassionate towards his dad and I tried to to have a um, an open mind but at the same time it has been a bit on and off and in and out which is a bit tricky for me so uh, I'm feeling like recently it's been more of a kind of conversation about that I think you should just try and take your time do what you need to do try and work through it if you can don't feel guilty about it because otherwise you won't enjoy your life and move on anyway even if you're not involved mm-hmm. so you know we're having these kind of quite things have come to a head and it's quite difficult at the moment but I'm also trying to be mindful of the fact that as I say this is a, this is very early on in terms of the big picture of Duke's life it's very hard not to have that support and that help and for me to be alone with him, it would have been much harder to not have him, so I always remind myself of that uh and as far as his dad goes, I just hope that one day that he that he does feel that he's in a better place and he wants to be to participate but you know I think I'm kind of starting to realize that that may not be the case, and again that doesn't fit in with i think i think initially perhaps I was a little bit um idealistic I think that also ties in with with perfectionism where I thought, oh, we can make this work you know it's it's fine it's it, it's not great, you know. It's not. It's not conventional, but we can make it work. And you know, just me thinking that didn't wasn't enough to carry it through, or hasn't been so far.
0: I mean, I can hear the push and pull. On the one hand, really recognizing that the father, this wasn't what he planned or wanted, and may and he has a daughter already, and doesn't have maybe the emotional or the financial capacity to be involved for all the different reasons that maybe his that we we don't know, and I I, I can't talk about. But for you, I mean, I know as a parent and, and a grandmother, parenting is difficult with two of you. Parenting on your own is, uh, must be unbelievably hard. And if you're a perfectionist, then you know that must push lots of kind of messy chaotic buttons because this isn't a tidy
1: sock drawer is it this isn't Marie Kondo life. no it's really not it's funny you use the sock drawer analogy because he's constantly flinging my socks around all over the place and I'm you know I'm constantly checking in with myself all the time <laughs> like sometimes find myself putting them back and then I'm like what are you doing just let him do it he's here to give you that chaos that you need in your life you're absolutely right he's it's pushing my buttons all the time um and I think that's constantly being called on for you know personal resources and resources such as yourself and other sort of methods I've come to use over the years to stay strong and stay on top of things for him really. Can we go back a step and look
0: at the roots of your perfectionism because perfectionism the the sort of fundamental of perfectionism comes from a a feeling of needing control and that usually comes from a sense of powerlessness and not having your own agency or feeling that you have to be something else because you're not good enough or valued and loved enough, unconditionally, you're not enough.
1: So, background is that I was brought up in a single-parent household. My mum, unlike me, was very young when she had me. She was 19, I think, when she got pregnant. Um, She had me and my sister a year and a half apart. It is fascinating how history repeats itself. It is, absolutely. And I think me moving to Sweden and a time of my life where I have been very much aside from a family, coming to sort of join a family and be close up and then having those insights and seeing constantly the kind of ripples of generational patterns. Um, and, And sometimes I think that my awareness could come from just who I am it could come from being the oldest and having had that kind of bird's eye view and that separation but sometimes the awareness of those things can be really difficult because you're sort of trying to deal with your own triggers and your own issues but you're kind of seeing patterns and things all the time that perhaps other people aren't seeing Um, and I don't mean that as a criticism I just mean that as as it's part of who I am it's just the way I am
0: you're navigating your story while you're aware of everybody else's stories and you're trying to work out what's me what's them Ah!
1: yeah exactly and trying to be (laughs) trying to be balanced and fair at the same time you can't always be like that because you're a human being and you're emotional and you're angry and and all of these things so so just to go back to your point I would say that my mum has battled her whole life with mental health issues um she it was very much growing up a role reversal situation where I was more like the adult and she was like the child Um I always felt like I had to work very very hard to to give her a reason to live she was always um struggling with depression gosh I mean it wasn't uncommon to come home from primary school and find her with the curtains shut cry- and had been crying in bed all day and that kind of thing you know it was it was a normal thing for me to have to go in from a young age and try and you know calm her down and she was definitely in on and off in a very dark place and I would say could have been something like undiagnosed manic depression because she could be you know up hoovering and cleaning the house at midnight with the music on with me and my sister in bed you know on a very high or she would be in in these extreme lows so it was it was very extreme um and we had different male presences on and off um my dad was out of the picture quite early he then went on to to remarry and had four other children so that's that's the family I've come to join here is him and my stepmother are no longer together and haven't been for a long time so you came to Stockholm to be with your dad not my dad he's estranged from the family now but from my with my stepmom who um who I've now known who's been a part of my life since I was about two uh, and her four children that she had with my dad plus my sister who my dad and my mum had. Um, everybody's out here but your mum where's your mum my mum she's been living in spain for a lot of years now but she just recently moved back to scotland where she's from so so i think with a lot of recent reflection i think i've kind of realized that from a really difficult time in my life that happened just before i got pregnant with duke so i was working as a documentary producer here in stockholm um, it was a really difficult project, but an interesting one. It was a human rights story um, about a young guy in, in Texas who'd spent his life in prison for a crime he didn't commit. So it, it was super interesting. And then the whole production stopped because of COVID. So it was around March 2020. I just moved into a flat in Stockholm. It was completely empty. Um, the, the job stopped. I was almost, you know, it was just a white flat. Gosh. So I was almost in a kind of white blank space and um like a prison I mean the emptiness like in isolation yeah it was really strange and at that and at that point I found out that my mum had got back together this is my biological mum had got back together with the stepdad that she met so this was her husband from that came into my sister and my life from when I was about 10 and they had a very very destructive relationship and when they'd eventually moved from Essex to to Spain when I was in my early 20s just to try and start a new life uh, there Uh, he'd actually gone and cheated on my mum but with an underage girl who was 15 and that's how their relationship ended and so this is a this is what I really want to talk about because I think I will call it sexual abuse what happened in in my family and I've come to realize that that's exactly what it was there was nothing physical that happened but it was I would say it was a process of grooming over years and years and years and it didn't stop till I was about 30 so what am I now I'm 43 so when I was in my early 20s this is when it happened when he when he met this girl and had an ongoing for years affair with her over the years of probably I would say from from when she was about 15 to probably 18 or 20, and the details are hazy. I don't know too much because I broke off contact with him or tried to, um, and it was a long time ago in my life, also. But my mum, because she was so reliant on him, found it really hard, you know, to to come to terms with what he'd done, to actually to to recognise what he'd done, um, to admit it to herself. So she didn't let go of the marriage for many years, despite my sister and I saying, "Come on, you know, where do you draw the line if you're not going to draw it here?" Um, and then I think it was just this horrible creeping realization for both my sister and I, it wasn't an overnight thing, but it was more like, hang on a second, then he used to do this and he used to say this to us, and he made us feel like this, and he made us feel like that. And and it's taken a long time for us to realize that actually what he was doing is as their marriage deteriorated, was his focus in the household was shifting to we were we were becoming adolescents. So he'd known us since we were 10, but we were becoming. And his, you know, his, he wasn't getting what he needed from the relationship with my mum. But he had, there was two teenage girls in the house, and he used to take us out individually. He used to socialise with us. There was always alcohol involved. He would say really inappropriate things. He would pour his heart out to both of us about all the problems he was having in his in the marriage with my mum. And we, you know, this was just normal life for us. And we we just started to feel very sorry for him and think, God, isn't she awful? Our mum, she's making him so unhappy. And I, and I can, you know, remember saying things like, you really should leave her, she's awful, you know, she's making us all unhappy. And now I, I'm, I'm an adult and um, have this insight that what he was really doing was sort of t- to get, you know, where he wanted to be, to divide us from our mother, to really control this situation. I feel chilled
0: at how sort of subversive mm. he was grooming you and leading to abusing you and how seductive that is that you didn't you couldn't and couldn't have been able to recognize it until you're an adult looking back and i can see you looking tearful and kind of shocked in recognizing it
1: it's it's really difficult because you just start to wonder who who you were who you are and who you might have been yeah and Coming back coming back to being here, it was it was probably around 20 years after this had happened and the marriage took a few years to dissolve, but they did eventually divorce. And then when COVID hit and I was here in this flat on my own, I found, that was when I found out my mum had actually got back together with him and the conversations I'd had with her in the past about what he did and how he'd made me feel. Despite all of that, she had... Got back together with him, and it was a physical reaction I had. It was about twenty years later, and it was something that was so physical that I had to remember sitting in this flat on my own, and I had to call. It was like it was almost like a obviously I wouldn't call an ambulance, but I I straight away found a women's refuge, and I just had to call somebody and say, "I think it's like you'd hit by a bomb, kind of thing." Yeah, I think something's happened. (laughs) So, I think the reason I find this is so important to talk about is because I think people think it's it's a very taboo subject still and I think people constantly get so bogged down in the act of um you know discussing what happened you know did somebody touch you physically and what I'm really interested in is and, and you know I know a few women even in my circle that have survived sexual trauma and they all go back to the same thing and they talk about um the moment where they changed it's not to do with what somebody did to them physically it's to do with they they know when they when their sense of self shattered you know and i think yes. oh. take a breath take a breath so i've had this in Slow my mind for so long and it's it's so strange to say it out loud <laughs> um i can really
0: hear you and it's so painful kind of recognizing and voicing what's been in your head because as you voice it it becomes more real how you know that something shattering happened to you over time that changed who you are changed who you were and you wonder who you might have been Exactly, yeah. Talk to me what's happening inside, what's happening in your body, what, what's the feelings in your chest? Uh, fear. 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 I can see it's like coursing through your neck and up into your head. Yeah. Can I just say this is a terrible thing that happened to you. Thank you. That was not of your making.
1: Thank you, Julia. But it's it's good to good to be heard so thank you for that and I could hear the pain and the way
0: it's so kind of gnarled and entwined and unclear so as you say it it's clear but I can imagine I think you said the word creeping this creeping mm. realization that you were being mm. ab- subtly abused by your stepfather and that when people talk about abuse it's mm. normally about yeah. acts like did he touch you and you're recognising the psychological abuse mm. that has shaped and is—I was going to say—shaping you. But I, maybe what I'm saying is that as you're talking, you're kind of releasing it to unshape you, so that you can release yourself.
1: I hope so. I hope so. I think I think that's part of talking to you because it's it's really funny, actually. I th- I feel like sometimes. I'm quite psychically driven in my life and the big things that have happened to me have been almost so powerful a part of my subconscious that that nothing I could have done would have changed it and I and I think when I was younger I really wanted to be an actress and I used to absolutely love nothing more than being on a stage having attention I could learn lines like this um and just shining, just being me. And this was when I was a teenager, and I was always so sure. I can see you <laughs> looking <laughs> amazing. Oh my god! Really? I honestly, I like, and it, it's so. So for me, the, the loss that I mourn is that that person, um because of because of the impact of his attention on myself and my sister, but I can't really speak for how it affected her as much. Uh, I turned inwards, oh. and I and I began to. I, I didn't want anybody looking at me anymore because because what what I realized that was happening was that it it actually caused uh, the devastating loss of my family um and, and so my mother chose him and she moved with him and you know for many years I thought how could she leave us how could she leave us and it wasn't until later when she finally got back together with him that I realized you know um, I have to be have a lot of compassion towards my mother because she has so many issues and and probably has sexual abuse in her own background that she's never really resolved. I feel like she left us because she wants she chose him and she knew that she had to separate him from us. And then that didn't work because obviously they they moved and he found this other girl. So I guess just trying to find words and a name for this experience and not even realizing until about two or three years ago that it was in fact sexual abuse and feeling like, do I have a right to call it that? But now I feel like, well, if I've if I've had these experiences and it's been this shattering for me, other people must have had it and I need to um, try to make some kind of sense out of it for myself, for my own uh, personal challenges, as I've mentioned, but also maybe eventually to be able to articulate these experiences to help other people.
0: Yeah. And it is only by letting yourself fully know what has happened to you that you can begin to work on the impact on what has happened to you. Mm. I have this beautiful image of this young teenage girl on the stage shining, (laughs) like full of sort of starlight, if you like, and enjoying that attention and receiving it and growing from it. And then the devastation and the word you use, the shattering of you turning inwards when you felt shame. And that it, it's shame that has shattered you, that you couldn't let yourself be open anymore to receive attention and love. And because that had been tarnished, had been contaminated by the, I was going to say disgusting, I think that is the right word. Yeah. I want vile attention of your stepfather
1: yeah that's the loss that's the loss (laughs) and and that's what you are left with Um, and I think that's what doesn't get talked about enough Um, that's the the price that you pay for going through that because it's so subtle
0: because it's all invisible you know someone sitting next to you in a in a hamburger joint wouldn't know what he was doing to you no exactly Yeah. yeah and I
1: didn't know and you didn't know I would say it's twofold, really, because it was the loss of the relationship with my mother, which I think would have been difficult anyway. But she was my mum and I would have done anything to hold on to that. Yeah, this is your mum. You know, even now I'm 43 years old and I still have dreams where it's, it's always the same dream. It's like it's Friday night and I'm coming home to the family house, but he's not there because she's got rid of him, which is what I always wanted her to do. Uh, and we're just going to hang out together and have oh, a nice cheers. dinner and watch TV and do some things we used to do. And, I, you know, that's that's still... To this day that's still how I feel. I must do because I dream about it still. Yes, I can feel that Um, sadness. Like I want my mum. I want a normal mum who
0: I can watch telly with and have supper with, who I can go home to, who I can have a hug from, who we can have a cup of tea and a laugh and exactly. Yeah. Silly telly with and exactly. She can love my
1: son. It's so heartbreaking. So many losses. Well, thank you, Julia, for acknowledging that. I tried to make a picture map almost of my family on the wall the Duke because it's so complicated and I want him to know who everyone is um, <laughs> so I think I keep it there because you know maybe, my, maybe the thing I think I really need to do now is to try and um, as far as possible to try and get in touch with that authentic self um, and you know not to say I'm going to become an actress because I'm kind of busy with other things right now but it's funny because I'm actually a waitress at the moment, which I really enjoy. And um, I used to do a lot of that kind of work when I was that age. And it's, it's just funny because it wasn't a conscious decision. But again, I think, you know, I had this job as a producer, which was great. But it was very stressful. And then that ended because of COVID. And then I found myself pregnant in a country where I had no citizenship, no rights to any benefits or anything like that. And I just had to get a job. And this, this restaurant opened up right underneath my flat. So I went down there and I got a job. And I worked until I was six months pregnant on the floor serving pizzas. And I got my first employment contract that I have had since I moved to Sweden there. Wow. So <laughs> so, uh, so it's a belonging. Yeah, it's a route. Yeah. I mean, it's a route.
0: I mean, you've gone fast from that picture of you as a young, innocent, beautiful teenage girl to where you are. And I guess the bit in between, the narrative in between, is that you want to get, you want to reinvigorate that young girl in you. You want to bring her back to life. And I think what I'm hearing you say is by waitressing, which you did when you were a teenager, and doing it now, is connecting with you, with that young girl in you. And also very kind of profoundly in some ways, they have given you stability. It's mm. given you a sense of belonging in a country where you had no rights and no yes ties.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it has. So interesting how doing things like serving pizza can have such a big psychological impact because it connects you with that young girl who is innocent and vibrant and confident and sexy and alive.
1: Yeah. I think you might have something there, sexy pizza. <laughs> sexy
0: pizza. <laughs> oh, dear. so if if we if I try and stick to the mm, format yes. of my podcast, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we've answered. It's too complex for me to kind of try and tracey what has been particularly challenging about this experience. But I think clearly, Duke being born in a way that was out of your control connected you to this horrendous sexual abuse which was completely out of your control that you couldn't name for mm. for too many years but it kind of warped mm. your sense of self and now having that picture of that young girl on the wall is a direct link to your authentic self that you're re invigorating bringing back to life and the the job has helped you what else do you think talking to me I hope is helping you yeah what else has helped you what Um, what helps you
1: when I can not so much these days uh currently with this new routine but um yoga is a really big crutch for me brilliant I just try to I mean I I you know i had to overhaul my lifestyle a few years ago when i got diagnosed with this pituitary tumor um so you know that that made me Whoa. um it i think in, in a lot of ways it, it gave me a new framework for how to live you know and just to recognize my needs and that kind of thing and be aware of you know feeling things in your body and taking rest when you need it and um you know all those kind of things that are good for us that uh Sometimes you don't always do until you really have to, so
0: but they' sort of they are the key fundamental pillars of of health sleep, mm. what you eat, what you move yes, connection, you know we need those as a basis before we can even begin to do other stuff
1: mm. yeah, definitely I think you know i I think it came at a point where you know the diagnosis had started when i was 30 and they didn't find anything uh it was from having irregular periods and um so then i think it was about 10 years later eight years later actually yeah that was when they actually found the tumor because it was a small tumor and it wasn't cancerous but it was doing a lot of of harm anyhow to
0: all of your endocrine system your you know all your hormones were rioting I guess
1: yes exactly and I think um you know the ironic thing was having always wanted to become a mum um the way the decisions I was making and the choices in my life were not It was like I was at odds with myself you know I wanted this stable relationship and a family but everything I was doing wasn't really pushing me in the direction I wanted to go in so I think and the stress of having had those experiences in the past I think everything was just in turmoil inside me and um You know, I'm not really surprised now I have this kind of insight that that was was what happened to me, that I did get that particular illness. It's so not
0: coincidental that your body would be shouting and damaged and screaming in a way with what happened to you Mm. and also that unconsciously you were sabotaging because you basically it had been shattered and didn't really believe you were worthy I guess of of being loved and, and having your own child and as you're realising it I can see it in your face it, it's incredibly painful and knowing it can free you to give you a picture of what you can let yourself have that you can believe mm. you're of value to have. Thank you. What would be your picture? I mean, you have Duke, who's obviously amazing.
1: I think if I'm going to be really honest, another little challenge I'm having at the moment is that I've always wanted to have a big family. And it sounds a bit ungrateful, really, but I think... um, But it's it's a bit more complicated than that. There's there's feelings of... I think because I was sort of really grieving this... um, potentially not becoming a mother when he came along... Part of me now just feels very fearful sometimes that I'll lose him somehow. And it's, and it's really strange. It's like um, something could happen to him or even just losing his babyness. That's why I think I'm really challenged at the moment just from this kind of going to work and him being in full-time nursery. It's just this feeling of co- having to come to terms with a constant loss of just, even it's just the stages of him growing up, but also there's a part of me that's fearful of returning to the state where I didn't have him at all. And then there's other kind of, oh, I know... Perhaps it's, well, I'm just going to be honest and say, I just, I feel sad that I might not have another child. I probably won't have another child.
0: Unlike your mother, who never really grew up for all the reasons that probably were not of her making, what I'm recognizing in your words is maturity, is recognizing that life is both love and loss. It's an iterative process that you fall madly in love with this baby. And the process of loving your babies is also losing them in their different ways of being and underpinning that for you is daring to trust do I dare trust that I legitimately his mother and he's legitimately my son and I and I can have him I can trust that we have a future together that he's not going to be taken away from me in the same way I was taken away from myself by an outside force
1: yeah I think that could be a lot of truth in that for sure it's nice the way you put it What are you learning? What have you learned? Maybe sounds a bit bit cliche, but gratitude for sure, because um, I'm just so grateful to have him. It was so painful to not have him. Um, People say how hard it is to do it alone, and it is very hard, but I don't know any different per se. All I know is that it was really difficult to not have him, and I would never wish to return to that. I've learned, I think, um, it's always with me, that feeling or it's never far away and I really try to reach out and be a a good friend to women I know that are in that situation um there's a a neighbor of mine that doesn't have a baby and no we've become really good friends and I told her to come give him a squeeze whenever she feels like it and she does and it's really nice and I can see it's hard she doesn't have to say it's hard I can see because I've been there and a couple a couple of other friends and even just thinking about what they're going through is uh it's really painful for me to even think about because i know you know i would want i'm sad for them that they won't get to know that joy um yeah. <laughs> and i can see the joy on your faces you laugh to spend and that's a
0: beautiful thing
1: oh thank you and
0: also that deep gratitude is in itself healing isn't it that that can soften some of these not can't take them away but it can it helps invigorate that young version of you. Yes. And I can also hear how you want to speak for and connect to women so much. Mm. And we can't go into it because this is one session, As it, your capacity to trust men would be very small. So that would be a big, if you're wanting to have a long-term relationship, trusting men, I imagine, would be a huge challenge for
1: you yeah or it's t- I would say two things is trusting them and perhaps it's through the lack of trust that means I don't feel like I can really be myself or, or be vulnerable yeah and that can be it's a barrier to intimacy and you know another whole area of that which is probably not surprising is you know my stepdad was an alcoholic and I feel like that's not that surprising given what's happened and you know from what from from the little I have read about these kind of situations in families that's often one of the, the main factors you know it's the kind of step family situation and then you put the alcohol into that and then you put the marital issues into that and it's it's perhaps not so uncommon for these kind of situations to to happen so yeah um I've had lots my main relationships with in my life have been with um, guys who have struggled with alcohol. And it's not something that I ever even necessarily notice off the bat, which sounds surprising, but I'm so used to it. I'm just so used to that being a part of
0: it's normalized. Exactly. Yeah.
1: And then all of a sudden I'm like, hang hey, on a second. You know, it's yeah, it's surprising really how long it takes you in life to understand yourself and what's happened to you.
0: I mean it feels like you've traveled a long way in understanding yourself in a very short time. A lot of it got kind of stuck and co-leased and then in the last few years, it feels like as painful and agonising. I'm sure this your realisation, as it has emerged in you, has been it is also liberating you. We don't have that much time left, so I was wondering, do you have a question for me? If okay, well, what advice would you give me? I mean, I I don't know about advice. As I'm feeling you now and feeling connected with you now, I can really feel your capacity to have um, compassion for others Mm. and particularly for other women. And my wish for you is that you could turn that big capacity to love and give it to you on that young you, on the 20-year-old you, the 25-year-old, the 30-year-old, for you as you've been through the years that you've been through and allow yourself to really respond to yourself with love and kindness.
1: Oh that's lovely, thank you. (laughs) Um, That's really lovely. And to really believe that you're worthy of it,
0: to really let yourself know that I am lovable and can love myself and, and that can free me also to love and trust
1: others. Oh, thank you, Julia. It's really lovely the way you put it. And I think um, just hearing it framed in those kind of words is uh, definitely something I'll hold on to and remind myself of. I think it will be helpful. Maybe write it down somewhere and
0: put it close. Yes, I will do. So thank you, Jess, for having the courage to be so open And tell your story. And I know that other people will hear their story, and it may well enable them to begin to process their injuries and things that have happened to them. So thank you so much. I'm really grateful to you. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are, what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything,
2: but let's hear what their thoughts
0: are this week.
2: It was such a joy to listen to uh, your conversation with Jess. She just is so full of life and humanity and it was just a real, um, you know, it's always a pleasure to listen to the interviews and I think she really brought herself into it. And I know we're not talking about the content of the interviews, but it was just that I really felt her from the interview and she brought a lot. What I felt was the thing that brought her alive Was being heard. Yeah.
0: Like she has not been heard enough. As the session progressed, she got more and more alive. And she was having a really, I mean, we talked about very painful, difficult subjects. But the more that she was affirmed in what she was feeling, I could feel her kind of expand in front of me. It was extraordinary.
2: Right. I mean, and I know we're all therapists and therefore biased, but I think that is just such a, beautiful example of the power of therapy that just having somebody a supportive not just any random person but a supportive person who can understand your experience is really transformative even if it's just a little a little nugget and yeah like you say she brought up a lot of really difficult subjects and I think obviously sexual abuse was one of them um and that is something that I've actually had quite a lot of experience of working with children who've experienced sexual abuse. Um and it's just awful and also horribly more common than anyone would like to think. I think it's something like one in ten children would experience sexual abuse before the, the age of 18. I didn't know that. Yeah, no, it's really just just terrifyingly high um, and higher for girls than for boys. And I think one of the reasons that she really sort of spoke to is that it can be very confusing and um, difficult to know what is going on. And I think the other part of it is people don't want it to be true because it's such a horrifying idea that a child could be sexually abused. That I think people don't talk about it. People don't even necessarily believe a child when they have them when they report it, um, because just it's so like the idea of it is you just want to push it away it's so horrendous Mm. and this the thing I thought was fascinating
0: was her and her sister's creeping realization Mm -hmm. that word creeping is the right word but also it wasn't about being touched it was about that moment she recognized that her sense of self was changed by Sexualization of his attention.
3: Like the loss of herself. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's the loss of yourself, because also having worked quite a lot with adults who have a history of childhood sexual abuse, what she echoed from my experience is that it is the psychological impact of abuse, sexual abuse, but also all forms of abuse, that tends to have the longest arm, longest impact through your life, rather than the individual instance.
0: That's such a beautiful way of putting it, so.
3: Yeah and 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 like you described that kind of that violation of trust as between a child and an adult or within attachment relationships that happens when when abuse happens by someone we know or someone we're supposedly supposed to trust that then influences that kind of model of relationship through the rest of our lives that we have to find ways of accommodating.
2: And I think also the murkiness of it. You know, I think there's some forms of abuse that it's you know she's spent her whole life trying to figure it out like that it was so unconcrete and yet subtle had such a deep fundamental impact that you know i think it's so confusing like have i imagined this did this really happen and yet my my feelings and my experiences that it that it did and it has really shaped
3: me and how do i like merge those two things together mm. Which makes me think of one of the other things that's kind of made me think about it. wasn't specifically what she was talking about, but that sexual abuse and shame and how much they can go hand in hand, and how hard then it is. The horrible bedfellows, aren't they?
0: Sexual abuse and shame.
3: Yeah, to disclose is then becomes really hard. And but that that sort of shame thrives in secrecy. And when we're talking about sort of talking and that sort of sense of expanding. It's definitely that ability to to name it and bring it out in the air and have it acknowledged and heard is is one of the best antidotes mm. I know for shame. I remember working with one client who desperately wanted to name what happened to her, but just couldn't bring herself to say mm. it out loud. And so she got her husband to come in with me and get him to say it out loud in front of her. And it just even getting him to say it and for her to be witnessed and it to be heard made an enormous difference to her quite rapidly and how much bravery and vulnerability that takes
2: now that you know the thing of shame also made me think about um what Jess was talking about at the beginning and this idea of um her becoming pregnant from a one-night stand which was not what she imagined and how to make sure that her child does is sort of insulated from shame around that and I was sort of thinking around how do we insulate our children from shame or things that we are worried that we don't want to pass on that like you say I think the way our instinct is to not talk about it like if I don't talk about these things that happen to me that I don't want to pass on then I won't pass them on (laughs) and actually the opposite is true the more we are able to talk about the things that are hard or that we feel guilty or we feel ashamed about like I remember being pregnant with my second child and feeling a lot of guilt around all sorts of things for no you know all sorts of reasons and thinking part of me wanted to just not think about it and not talk about it but actually the more that we can talk about those icky things inside I think the less likely it is that then our child becomes the like you know vessel of those guilt and shame feelings.
0: What I was wondering as you were speaking I actually, I don't think I'm prepared to go into it. But I was thinking, gosh, what stories did I tell you, and what stories did I protect you from my childhood? So what, what did I hide?
2: I don't want you to answer. You don't, <laughs> not even in general terms.
0: <laughs> okay, you can say it in general terms, but I don't want this to be me bursting into tears because of all the bad stuff I did. No, I
2: think in general terms, our sort of did so might have a completely different version. My narrative was. The, your childhood was filled of quite a lot of intensity and moments of chaos. Would that yes. be accurate? And then true. what you wanted to give us, which I think you really did give us, was a lot of safety and structure and routine and predictability, which we got from our family. And also we had a very lovely nanny. Yes, yes, totally. But also
0: I didn't let you fight. That was the downside. I would always say, "Don't fight, don't fight, don't fight," and that wasn't good.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think because your experience of anger had not been good, therefore, like the emotion of anger was was
3: hard to tolerate. Scares me. Yeah, yeah. So, what would you think? I would. I would agree with all of that, and that, and that thing about passing things on. Not to bang on about the power of therapy, but the thing that it does, isn't it, is that it gives you that insight so that you can try and make different choices. Mm.
2: Yeah and there's actually a very lovely very simple exercise that you can do if you want to think about the emotions that you can tolerate for yourself and for your children which is if you draw a big circle and then if you think about your sort of poor emotions which are sort of joy anger sadness disgust disgust fear and then in the middle of the circle, you could put the emotions that were sort of tolerated by your family as a child. So when I was happy, it was OK. When I was sad, it was OK. And then on the outside of the circle, you could put the emotions that felt they were not acceptable. So anger or fear or whatever they are. And then the ones that were source of OK, you could kind of touch on, but not like fully you know really weep for example if sadness that's so clever yeah you can put them sort of on the line of the circle and it's just a very simple nice little exercise to do that can kind of help you think in a really tangible way that just sort of help you reflect on what emotions are then more likely you're going to be able to tolerate in your talk. I love that. I've never done that. That's really interesting. Yeah, that's great. That's perfect. Um, I really identified with what she talked about after having children of this sort of constant sense of like fear that you're going to lose them, anxiety, and also a loss as they're growing up. It's like I have two children and I have the, the second one. She's only one, but I'm still like, oh, she's which is it's mad it's mad because she's growing up and that's what she's supposed to do but I really identified this sort of like almost like a loss of of her as she grows and like also an anxiety about losing them I mean it took I had wanted children for a very long time and it took a while and um so I just I think I really identified with with those that fear and loss having
3: had children Absolutely. I really recognise that same feeling too with my own children. Even though you can be in the middle of being with your child at that age and finding it maddening one minute and then so sad the next, you know, putting them to bed, thrilled they're asleep, and then spending time looking at the photos of them of the day. But it's also that thing that love and sort of loss come so... Intertwined. They run side by side just all the way through your life in so many different ways. And then the more intense you love, the more much you fear those... fear the losing of them. And the parenting...
0: And parenting adult children, like parenting you two is an ongoing process of holding on and letting go, and mm. that that changes in color and and intensity and the ways that we do it, and that we have to transition and reorganize ourselves as the relationship and the development and life changes. Mm. but for me. Relationships that function well enough, like we're all dysfunctional at, at times, is when we can allow ourselves to hold on and, and love at times, but also to sometimes mm. the part of loving is stepping back and letting them be your, staying quiet, or and that love is so not a soft skill; it's so complicated, and often it's yeah. more about stepping yeah. back than it is about stepping in
3: at different phases and stages. It makes me think about when I, when Jess was talking the a bit like when someone dies, there's also times when we, for our own well-being, need to be separated or estranged from family members, if they are dangerous to our well-being over a long period of time. And that kind of estrangement is a really complicated relationship because, in the same way that it's lost when someone dies, you still have a continuing relationship with that person, even if you don't talk to them, even if you don't see them. Um, there's actually a lovely website called uh, Stand Alone which gives lots of resources and information for people who are estranged from family members and
2: oh great mm, really good Meds of
3: mental health support around that in groups that you can join
0: we'll put that in the show notes so i think at that point again there's so much more but thank you thank you both that was really meaningful and lovely so we've come to the end thank you both so much for your knowledge I love learning from you. A big thank you to Jess too. I feel like we learned so much more about what she's been dealing with internally. And I think she began to understand herself more too as the conversation went on, and that's therapy. I really love doing these episodes with unheard voices as they're just incredibly powerful. That's why I'd love to ask for any other unheard voices who are facing a challenge would like to have a conversation with me to get in touch by emailing us at jsamuelpod at gmail.com. Take care until next week.